Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional, the author of several books including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, Step-by-Step Guide for Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft, and she sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's also a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. So to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Tonight we have one of my heroes. You know, he has been on our show before. We have Senator Joe Simidian. He's from the Palo Alto area. He was talking to us last year about one of his bills that that passed through the legislature and was vetoed by the governor. We're going to talk about that. He is a real techie expert himself, um, and he is very adept at all of the nuances with regard to radio frequently, frequency identifiers that we've talked about quite a bit. Let me tell you a little bit about his background, and it's fabulous. Senator Joe Simidian was elected to the California State Senate in, back in November of 2004, and he represents the 11th State Senate District in California, which includes San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz counties. His public service over the years includes stints as a state assembly member, member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors, mayor of Palo Alto, and president of the Palo Alto School Board. He's also served as an elected uh, election observer and supervisor in El Salvador and Bosnia, and he participated in refugee relief and resettlement efforts in Albania and Kosovo. Lots of stuff here. Senator Simidian received his B.A. with academic honors from Colorado College, and he also holds a Master of Arts degree in International Policy Studies from Stanford and a Master in City Planning from the University of California at Berkeley, and his law degree is from UC Berkeley. Since serving in the California legislature, um, Senator Simidian has been widely recognized for his commitment to service and the passion that he brings to his job. He was recently named chair of the California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy, and he is one of the few uh, legislators left that's really promoting and being our uh, hero in privacy. On February 6, 2007, he was awarded the 2007 RSA Conference Award for Excellence in the Field of Public Policy. And that was for his recognition for his work on the mandatory security breach notification law that has really been one of the most influential privacy laws in, in many, many, many years. And so that's, uh, that was good that he got recognized because that particular law has made a huge difference and many states have followed our lead and now the federal government is looking at security breach. He has uh, received Legislator of the Year Award from a wide range of organizations including the California School Boards Association, the American Electronics Association, and many more. The California Journal identified Senator Simidian as among those at the top of his class during his first term in the legislature. And the San Jose Magazine has repeatedly recognized him as one of the Power 100 of Silicon Valley. And in 2003, Senator Simidian was selected by Scientific American Magazine as one of the Scientific American 50 leaders in technology from around the world. So he also has been on a lot of TV shows. He's been um, in um, 
everything from CNN to Dr. Phil, and even on ABC Radio in National Australia in uh, Australia. So we're thrilled to have him with him with us. He brings a great perspective, an incredible background, and he really knows what he's talking about. And thank you so much for joining us, Senator. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the work you do to educate the public about privacy and identity theft issues, Mari. It's, oh. it's good and important work. Well, I'm so glad that uh, you're still working on privacy, because I know the last time we talked, you were saying, oh my goodness, you're going to be pretty much left alone there to carry the, the weight of the privacy people. Well, we, we, you're, you hinted at it earlier. We have lost a lot of uh, the legislative talent that has historically worked on these issues. Uh, Senator Bowen, Senator Murray, uh, Senator Figueroa, Senator Speer, all four of these uh, state senators in our 40-member state Senate left as a result of term limits this past year. And, right. um, it, you know, it's a, a, a smaller list of us, indeed, who really are interested in and focused on these issues. Uh, I'm not sure we had a chance to tell you, though, that in an effort to respond to that loss of talent, uh, I asked the president pro tem of our state Senate if we could create a Senate Select Committee on Privacy. He has agreed to do that. Uh, we will now have a formal body that can look at these privacy issues, and I'll chair that committee for the next two years. So I'm hoping that gives us a venue to have some of these important privacy discussions and the means by which to pull some new members into the mix of privacy conversations. Well, I know. I was thrilled to hear that you were made the chair of that, and that that's absolutely fantastic. And we know you're going to carry the torch. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so let's first, bef we've done so much that happened last year, but I want to first talk about what you're introducing this year, because that's really very timely right now, and we want people to listen, get on board, and support you. Well, we're going to uh, look at uh, two issues this year in terms of my legislative agenda. Um, you mentioned in your introduction that last year we had done uh, what we thought was good work on the issue of radio frequency identification uh, technology and its use in government identity documents. Uh, this, of course, as you know, is the technology that a lot of us use for access to our office buildings or an apartment complex, or if you're using fast track to get over the bridge. It's a little chip and an antenna that can be put in a card, and um, it, we use it a lot, or see it a lot, I should say, in a commercial context, but it's increasingly showing up in government identity documents as a way to um, broadcast, in effect, the personal information that's on your card to a reader that sends out a radio signal and says, hey, who are you? And the antenna in your card picks that message up, and the chip sends back the information. And in my case, it says, hey, I'm State Senator Joe Simidian, and I'm entitled to get access to the Capitol. And that's how I make my way into the Capitol when it's after hours, and I've got to get through what is supposed to be a secure door. The, the fundamental question, Mari, is, you know, do we really want state and local government requiring members of the public to carry identity documents that broadcast their personal information without their knowledge or consent. I mean, that's the, that's the issue that I'm grappling with here. Right. And, uh, you know, some, there are some unique... I, look, I think it's a marvelous little technology. It's a, it's a minor miracle. But like any technology, it depends on how well we use it and what kind of safeguards we provide. And we're seeing a growing proliferation of this technology. It's now in our passports. If you, you go to get a passport now, there'll be an RFID chip there. And that's a chip that you know can be read from 30 feet away by someone with a reader without your knowledge or consent. Now, to their credit, the State Department said, you know what, we didn't take these concerns seriously at first. But when business travelers said, look, we don't want someone in Bonn or Riyadh or in Mexico City to be able to read our information, the State Department sort of finally woke up to that. And now they're going to wrap every single passport in something called a Faraday cage, which basically is jargon for a little metal threads that will cover the front of the passport, the back of the passport, and the spine of the passport. And all of that will mean that it's harder for someone to read your information. But um, this is a, a technology that's beginning to proliferate, and it's one where we thought reasonable safeguards ought to be put in place. Did the bill last year, got most of industry to sign off on it, not all, but most. The governor vetoed the bill nonetheless, said he thought it was premature. And so we're back again this year. I've got five bills on this subject, one that would make it illegal to skim or read that information uh, without someone's knowledge and consent, one that would provide some basic security and notice protections if, it's gonna, if we're going to see this technology get used in state and local government documents, one that would simply prohibit it as a way to 
uh, take attendance and track kids in our public school systems, K through 12. One that would prohibit it in uh, our California driver's licenses. And the fifth and final one is a bill that would prohibit uh, the forced uh, implantation of RFID uh, in a human being over anyone's objection. And so on the RFID front, uh, a lot of work to talk about this year. My goal is by having these five different bills to sort of create a number of discussions and engage more of my members in the state Senate in that discussion. Let's talk a little bit about um, SB 30, because that is really the overall omnibus bill, really, that addresses the real concerns. And I know that was basically, you're, you're kind of reintroducing SB right. 768, and that um, was really very, um, it was a great over, I mean, it's it's a terrific bill. And you worked so hard on it for so long and tried to get so many people involved. Um, let's explain to our audience really what is in that bill, because that is so important. I don't think people even recognize what the dangers are. They're thinking, okay, well, so what? I've got a, an RFID. It's in my, my uh, toll transponder, and that makes it really easy for me so I don't have to stop and pay a toll, and I can get where I'm going when I want to go there. And you know, that's transparent. You that's, know, everybody knows it. Well, you know, and the 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 key here is uh, whether or not there's consumer choice or public choice, and that's why I think this little niche area of government identity documents is so important. Uh, I've made a judgment, for example, that I'm not going to use fast track. I don't really feel like I uh, need that convenience, and I've got concerns about folks, uh, you know, tracking my movements and knowing where I am at what what hours of the day. You know, um, those of us uh, who sort of feel our privacy is already compromised uh, may not want to add one more layer. But here's the thing. Somebody else might have a totally different view on that, and that's fine, as long as they have the choice. But the notion of the bill, uh, which last year was SB 768 and this year is Senate Bill 30, is, wait a minute, if there are going to be government identity documents that we're really obliged to carry and or use, Think of your driver's license, for example. Think of uh, student body card, perhaps, at, uh, at the uh, University of California. Then, at a minimum, there ought to be notice. People ought to know what's uh, contained on their own card, know where the readers are going to be. And there ought to be some basic security protections. Uh, and by that, you know, is there a random identifier or is the information just there raw for anyone to read? If there is a random identifier, are there other protections? Are we, do we have encryption, for example? Are there mutual authentication codes? Have steps been taken to make the card tamper-proof or clone-proof? Uh, all of those are sort of fairly basic questions. And the bill proceeds with the notion that the more sensitive the information is, the greater the degree of protections ought to be. But right now we're sort of out there in the Wild West. Anyone who wants to produce a card and can persuade some level of government to buy one then all of a sudden we get handed a card that we're told we have to use, and there's no protection whatsoever in most cases. And the technology is moving so fast before any of these safeguards are built in. And, and I've been reading things that there, you know, it used to be, what, I don't know, 60 cents to, to put an RFID, and right. then it went down to 25, and now they want to make it 5 cents. And it gets cheaper when they don't have to implement some of the safeguards that you're requiring. That's right. And, and so we've, we actually have had an interesting political dynamic, which is that people who tend to make higher-end products have been a little more receptive because they're thinking, you know what, these are not unrealistic or unreasonable expectations. And besides which, we've got the technology, if only we'd use it. People who make lower-end uh, products are thinking, you know, if we start to have to actually protect people's privacy, our product may not be able to corner as much of the market, and that's where we've gotten some of the resistance. And you'd be surprised at the what you think of as a high-end application that's really using pretty low-end products. Um, right here in the state capitol, which you know you would think would be one of the more secure buildings in the state, we've got um, you know uh, metal detectors at the entrances. We've got CHP on duty. We've got Homeland Security here. We've got the Sergeant at Arms. Uh, we've got uh, a new fencing that's gone up and ballards and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, I had a hacker in my office who uh, had my card in his hands for, you know, literally a matter of 10 or 15 seconds and handed it back after not only reading the card, but cloning it so that he was able to walk right in uh, to the building uh, with a cloned card that, in effect, passed him off as me. Oh. Uh, based, and it was, I mean, a matter of split seconds, Mari. And 
uh, people said, well, you know, but that was a set-up job. I said, look, he could do it. So we had uh, somebody come back and just wander through the halls with their reader tucked in their briefcase as they walked through the halls, got on the elevator, went to the lunchroom. And, you know, in the course of an afternoon, they picked up nine different numbers, seven from capital badges, uh, two from other badges that got read along the way. Uh, I mean, this is not rocket science. This is right. a pretty, pretty conventional technology. Uh, and if that's the level of security we've got for the state uh, of California in the capital, where we've got, you know, bomb-sniffing dogs and right. uh, all of that, uh, you can imagine that we can't expect for much more in any of these other applications. Right, and if they can capture that and then pretend to be you, I mean, what stops a terrorist from being able to do that or someone who wants to harm somebody in well, the capital? Well, that's right. And we've got, we've got sort of two sets of issues. We've got the sort of bad people will, will get the information and do bad things, and then we've got the sort of big brother uh, intrusiveness from uh, government that gets people anxious. I mean, let's suppose that this technology ends up in our driver's licenses. So well, now you've got 20-plus million folks walking around with driver's licenses, for example, that would have RFID in them. Well, you know, suppose you want to go to an anti-war rally there uh, on your campus, and somebody sets up a reader, and 2,500 people go to a perfectly lawful rally, and all of a sudden somebody's got a list, and they've got 2,500 skimmed pieces of data about who's participating in anti-war activities. Right, and I mean, then they put it on the Internet, and and then it gets proliferated, and then you get profiled as something. Maybe you were just in the neighborhood. Maybe you weren't even at the rally. You were visiting, and you parked in, in front of the rally to get your friend's house. Or it could be that your <laughs> politics are a little different. Maybe you went to the gun show at the county fair. Again, right. entirely legal. But what happens if somebody wants to set up a reader there and make a list, whether it was the police, somebody else, set up a reader, skim that information as people walk in, and again, you don't know it. And that's part of what makes this such a insidious uh, threat is that, you know, a lot of cases, if you got mugged, heaven forbid, you'd know you'd been mugged. And if your wallet was taken, you'd go make some phone calls and protect yourself against identity theft. Uh, if you were the victim of a pickpocket, you'd know that at the end of the day when you went to, you know, check your coat pocket and say, oh, my gosh, the wallet's gone. You could protect yourself. But when people skim your information because it is broadcast, you don't know it, and you don't know that they've done it, you don't know what they've taken, and you have no way to protect yourself. You know, I remember when the last time you were on, Senator, and you told us about how you had to wear a badge to get in to vote, and that um, no one knew it, but there were RFID um, transmitters in your badge, and then when you went through the door that, that you were read whether you went in to vote or not. Yep. Remember you were telling yep. me about yep. that and that the senators didn't even know this. No, and it's, it's been, uh, I mean, it's been an interesting exercise because, uh, you know, we, we would assume, as I say, that the technology we would have here in the state capitol with all these other protections would be top of the line. And so, I mean, if that's what we've got here in the state capitol, imagine, for example, if we've got a school district that wants to to put this technology together and it could be a you know most of our school districts are relatively small they may have you know a couple thousand students uh... they're not gonna have the expertise on hand to second guess what kind of privacy protections ought to be there if there isn't some basic standard established at the state level they're probably going to be persuaded by some salesperson that they ought to take a look at the least uh, least expensive option uh, particularly with tough times in the budget world. I understand that. But then all of a sudden we've got hundreds, if not thousands, of kids who are going to school. We had an incident a couple of years ago in Northern California where the kids were going to school wearing their RFID badges around their neck. That means on their way to school and on their way home from school, as well as while they're at the school, their information can be skimmed by anyone with a reader. It means that that information is being broadcast without their knowledge or consent. And in that case, you've got you know, safety concerns for the kids if somebody's engaged in profiling or stalking or tracking their movements. You've also got some privacy issues. As you know, California is one of the states that has privacy embedded as a constitutional protection in our state constitution. And yet we're telling folks that they have to send their kids to school. It's a compulsory system of education. And they have to have them wearing these RFID tags that broadcast their personal information. And even if it's only, as some people say, a randomly generated number, a unique identifier, well, so is your social security number. But I don't think any of us would feel all that good about broadcasting our social security numbers as we went about our daily business. Right. And those can be linked and uh, online and offline, and then they can find who, who you are, where you live, what you do. And, and like you said, it could be a real danger for these children. We're speaking with 
Senator Joe Simidian, who is a California senator and chair of the California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy. He's been a leader and a champion for privacy and liberty for our uh, California citizens. Senator Simidian, as I'm looking at um, SB 30, some of the things that I think people don't even recognize is that right now there's nothing to protect. Like you've got a whole series of things that you're asking for, like tamper-resistant features. Is what right. we can. <laughs> I mean, who could fight that? Tell me. Well, uh, you know, ultimately <laughs> we went through this exercise, and I, you know, in fairness, and I appreciate the fact. You know, I had my, my push-and-shove moments with uh, folks in the industry, uh, folks at the American Electronics Association, folks at the ITAA, the Information Technology Association of America. But ultimately, we negotiated over the course of a year, and they got to neutral and said they would not oppose the bill. We did have one of the makers, HID Corporation, who sat at the bargaining table uh, and to whom we made a lot of accommodations. And nonetheless, at the end, they walked away and said, we're sorry, but we continue to oppose the bill, and they opposed the bill. And ultimately, uh, you know, the governor was persuaded by someone uh, that this was, you know, too soon, premature. I would make the absolute other argument, if anything, you know, I'm worried that the genie's already out of the bottle here. We've got, you know, we're going to have a heck of a time if we end up with, you know, millions of, say, health cards issued by the government uh, that suddenly uh, are susceptible to being skimmed, or if we have 20-plus million um, Medicare cards yeah, or military. It, how about military IDs? All you know? of these. Uh, and, yeah. and again, you know, it may be that the use of this technology is fine, but for gosh sakes, let's put some basic privacy protections in place uh, so that uh, some kid with off-the-shelf technology. I mean, when we did a demonstration recently here in my office, just within the last couple of weeks, and you know, we had three different, uh, three different. We were looking, we were reading my card, uh, which is issued by the California State Senate for access to the building. We looked at a UC Berkeley student's card who had a card that was issued to identify him and also give him access to the lab at UC Berkeley. And then as it happened, we had a reporter here from uh, one of the television stations, uh, network television stations in San Francisco, and he handed his card. I mean, we just by good fortune, said, do you happen to have a card to get into your office? He handed it to us, and we read it and cloned it in a matter of seconds. Oh, my goodness. You know, um, so uh, all of that, by the way, done with a $150 reader that was purchasable online. I mean, this is we're not talking serious business here. This is pretty much available, and uh, to anyone who wants to go online, the information on how to do all this is, of course, online like everything else these days. But the technology is not, you know, this is not heavy lifting. This is um, pretty simple stuff. I hope you had a video of that that you could show to your we, fellow we, senators. <laughs> we, we, we did indeed, and um, we were able to demonstrate just how easily this is to be compromised. I mean, imagine taking attendance. I mean, for starters, you know, anyone who's ever met 12-year-old boys knows that Jimmy's going to give Johnny his card and Johnny's going to give Jimmy his card. <laughs> right. And we're off to being defeated in the first place. And the advocates for using this kind of a system for attendance taking said, well, but that's why you do a, a manual check as well. And then the question is, well, then how do we save any time or money if we still have to take attendance manually? Exactly. It, it just, it's a sort of, a, and then, you know, when we talk about our licenses, Mari, the, the obvious question is, are we, if we're headed towards real ID, then federal law says we have to have a common machine readable technology. Yes. Well, does that mean that every every state in the union is going to be able to read California driver's licenses? And, you know, how compromised are we if there's some clerk who gets flipped a $50 bill in Iowa? Uh, does that mean that somebody's suddenly going to have access to our information. I mean, just talk about talk about having, you know, worries about identity theft with that Real ID Act and, and the lack of safeguards with these RFIDs. It's it's incredible yeah. to me. But, you know, you had just brought up that was another thing you asked for in the bill was, you know, mutual authentication so that, yeah. you know, you authenticate who you're revealing it to. Right. And right. you authenticate who the person is. It makes sense to me. And, when you know, when we stood in front of the Capitol door, uh, uh, with our uh, cloned card, two things should have happened. The reader should have been able to say to the card that we presented, prove to me that you really are the card and not a clone. Right. The card should have been able to prove that. And more to the point, the reverse is also true, which is the card should have been say to the reader, prove to me that you're authorized to read my card. Those kinds of mutual authentication protocols are readily available the technology is is readily available, 
And that, to me, seems like a minimum requirement to make sure that if somebody's cloned a card or is using a reader other than the authorized reader, that there be some sort of protocols in place that are established to make sure that somebody with a $150 off-the-shelf reader isn't simply skimming your information. Exactly. I mean, we talk about, what, 9 to 10 million people a year in this country that are victims of identity theft. If you want to really increase it, just, you know, use these RFIDs without authentication. Another thing you asked for, which, again, is a, is a huge issue that I, I would think might be a concern for them for expense, is having that information encrypted when it's transferred, at least, and, right? And that, you know, all of those, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say there are costs associated with this, and that's part of what the debate is, which is yes. how great is the risk and how great is the cost to prevent uh, that risk. But that's why the bill was designed to say, all right, we're only going to impose some of these requirements when the risk level is greater, when the information is more sensitive. And, of course, you know, as, as we've seen with the technology itself, with every passing day, the technology gets smaller, stronger, and cheaper. And that's going to continue to happen. And, frankly, one way to make sure that happens is to say it's our expectation that these kinds of protections will be included. We start to do that and create a market for the use of that uh, security technology. It's going to be even cheaper and uh, more efficient uh, in a very short order as well. Exactly. If we think about how expensive computers used to be and how big they used to be, I remember years ago I sat on a school board as well, and I remember when we ordered our first, you know, computer, it filled a whole room, and it was so expensive. And now you have a computer, you know, so much tinier and so much less expensive than you could imagine. So, you know, you're right. The more that we build in the safeguards, at first it might be expensive, but then it'll go down and down in price as we get better. Well, and again, in most cases that we're talking about, you know, nickels and dimes here, uh, if it's important enough that we need to have a security system to keep uh, someone safe in the capital or to make sure that someone doesn't have access at the university to a place they shouldn't, it ought to be worth the nickels and dimes we're talking about. Yeah. Another issue that you have in this bill that I think, you know, I just don't think people get it. Like, you've lived with it every day, Senator. And so I think the people who are running by and driving by and on the campus here, they, you know, they're so involved in their own lives, they don't realize this, how this kind of technology is infiltrating everything. And so I wanted to bring up some of the other issues that you thought were important and put in this bill. And that is, the right to actually turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think of all of the different um, companies that are going to, you know, put things in our underwear and in our shirts and our shoes, et cetera, et cetera. When we leave, um, the, when we buy the item, we should be able to turn off this RFID so we can't be read every time we walk in the mall. And and that's, as, as you and I have discussed, uh, you know, particularly important when we're talking about a government identity document with personal information. I've actually stayed away from most of the consumer uses right. because I think as long as people have notice and they, if they want to make choices, and we're seeing now that the technology is coming along so that people can, in fact, snap the tag after the purchase and, in effect, disable uh, the RFID component that's there. Um, and when we get something like that that works on a reusable basis with government identity documents, well, then I think we're having a very different conversation because then it's about you being in control of your information, Murray, or your listener being in control of his information. If you can turn it on and off, that's very different than if you're in a position where wherever you go at any time of the day or night, somebody can skim your information. And you're right, Senator, because I have to carry my uh, driver's license wherever I go. Yeah. And right now, if someone wants to see my driver's license, I give it to them, and they run it through the barcode if they need to, and then I get it back. So I am really cognizant of when they're taking it. It's transparent to me. But like you said, if I can't turn that off by, you know, putting it back in my wallet, so to speak, and have some kind of shield that stops it from emitting, right. then, you know, then I am out there for whatever reason, for people, even commercial entities, to pick it up, or bad guys. And as I say, we had somebody in our operation just wander through the hall one day, and he came back in a matter of hours with nine different readings from nine different cards. I mean, that, and none of those people have a clue that their card was read uh, by some guy they probably didn't even notice who happened to be in the elevator, walking by him in the hall, or standing in line to get a cupcake at lunch. So what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that this time you're going to get it passed again? or? Well, what? I think, you know, I think, um, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish here, but I think 
it, you know, it's important to stop and sort of say to the group of folks, yourself included, who've been helpful in publicizing this issue, it's not as if we haven't had some good result already. We're, you know, we've gone over the course of the last two years from a discussion about there isn't a problem, if there is a problem, there isn't a fix, if there is a fix, it's not our responsibility. Um, you know, that, that we've now got people acknowledging that there are legitimate concerns, that there are solutions that can and should be implemented. And in fact, the argument now against the bill is, oh, we don't need a bill like this. Of course, we would never market a product or sell a product that didn't have adequate safeguards. And, you know, that that is a long way from where we started when people were in denial about the fact that there even was an issue. And that's why a show like yours is important, Murray, because it puts people on notice that these are issues they ought to ask. If they're uh, at the university and somebody hands them a card, you know, does this contain RFID? If so, what information is on it? Where are you going to read it? And are there any protections built in? Uh, until people start asking those questions, we can't be surprised that it just, you know, sort of business as usual. Um, you know, I want to make sure that every one of the thousand K through 12 school districts in California knows what this issue is about before somebody comes and sells them a bill of goods with a product that is fundamentally violative of the rights of those families to maintain personal privacy and may in fact put their kids at risk rather than provide some measure of protection. Are you are you speaking to the California boards, uh, California Association of Boards? You know how they have those conferences? Yes, and we're, we're talking to school boards. Uh, I have um, had that conversation with some of them. Uh, I want to be in wider communication with them as well. And, uh, you know, I, w- the, my frustration is, look, I'm a Silicon Valley legislator. As you described my background, I mean, yeah. for gosh sakes, the RSA uh, conference uh, award that you just made comes from a group of folks in the industry. The yes. AEA High Tech Legislator of the Award, High, High Tech Legislator of the Year Award, is a group of industry folks. I, I'm not hostile to the technology, as I said. No, of course I not. keep trying to tell my, my folks in Silicon Valley the only way you're ever going to be able to market this is if people have confidence that their personal information is confidential and secure. And, uh, you know, I think enlightened self-interest ought to make folks enthusiastic about ensuring privacy protections are in place. I haven't yet been able to make believers of them all. I think some of them are coming around. But I want to make sure that before we go forward, uh, and to the limited extent that it's appropriate to go forward, we get these privacy protections in place. And I think long-term, that's a good thing for people who want to market the product, because long-term, that's what it takes to create a receptive market. Right. If they trust the product and they trust the company that's using the product, they're going to use that product. If they don't, they're going to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting when you were talking about it's HID, right? I just recently read an article by someone who heads the HID that's saying something about it was to the, her own industry saying, you know, we have to self-regulate and then they won't need this well-intentioned legislation that is really unnecessary. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, that's the, and that's the debate. I mean, you know, with all due respect, trust us is not really an acceptable privacy protection standard. And particularly not, as I say, if I'm here in a state capital where somebody marketed a product that has no privacy protections whatsoever and no security protections whatsoever, what is it that they're marketing in other venues? And, you know, my concern is, and I've seen this over and over with privacy issues, is self-regulation has just not worked. You know, it, it, right. it hasn't. And so we need to have some parameters, some safeguards for citizens in our state and our country to be able to trust their government and to trust, uh, you know, <laughs> just working, well, you know, just walking around. I mean, if we have to be worried about it, it reminds me of the Minority Report. Remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. You know, where every, everywhere you go, your eyes are being read or what's being read. And I read in, the, in some article just, I think it was yesterday, that the Japanese now have an RFID that's as big as sand mm-hmm. and that there's worries that that could be put into food and then it goes into your body. Yeah. A- and then you don't know, you're walking around with this, you know, this RFID inside of you. Well, and it's, and uh, you know, which is, I think, just an indication of how quickly that uh, the technology progresses, as I said earlier, in terms of size, strength, and cost. And, you know, my, look, my goal, is, I think there are some questions that you have to ask and answer that are sort of philosophical questions. The first is, whose information is this? To whom does it belong? And my view is that your personal information belongs to you, Mari, and that my personal information belongs to me. 
and that we ought to have some right to control our personal information. You'll recall that, and I think you mentioned in your opening, you know, when I did the security breach notification legislation back in 2002, AB 700, SB 1386, you know, that was really a very light touch. It was a very simple, but I thought powerful way to empower the public, which was to say, look, if somebody holds your data and they have a security breach, they have to tell you. Right. That's all. It didn't, didn't, didn't tell them how they had to hold your, your data, didn't tell them that they had to do anything other than let you know there'd been a breach. But it seemed to me a very powerful thing to be able to say to you as a consumer, hey, we're going to let you know if your information has been uh, acquired, acquired uh, unlawfully. Oh, yes. And then, then Mari, you get to make the decision, do you want to get a new credit card? Do you want to not worry about it? Do you want to take a middle round and say, you know what, I'm going to read my statements more carefully? But that was your choice. And, yes. you know, what's happened in the in the last few intervening years is, that it had an added impact and that people who held that data said, okay, they didn't tell us that we had to do anything other than provide notice, but we don't want to have the embarrassment to our reputation and we don't want to have the cost associated with having to share that information. So maybe we ought to do something at the front end and tighten up our security. Now, those were all the folks who for years were saying, oh, trust us, we're taking care of your security, but who suddenly discovered that there was more that they could do if, if they were faced with the consequences of having to provide notice when their security let them down. Well, I'm glad you brought up this, because this is a huge issue that's happening right now. We know that there's been, what, about 110 million people in our country now who have been, you know, at least these are publicized, okay? These are the publicized breaches of that, you know, of all those people that have had their sensitive information acquired by an unauthorized party, a third person, which could be a criminal or it could just be someone who's unauthorized. But um, one of the things that you had in that bill, which which later became law, was that there was a carrot in there that if you are a company that encrypts this data, then you're off the hook. You don't have to notify. So there was the stick of saying, if you have lost or it's been acquired, we know that it's been acquired by a third party who was unauthorized, then you have to notify unless you encrypt. Right. So that was the that was really um, causing companies all over the com- country to really improve their security measures. Exactly. And we, you know, what we've discovered is that, and I had hoped this at the time, but, you know, sometimes things don't work out as well as you hope. Other times things work out even better than you'd imagined. And <laughs> this one worked out better than I had imagined because when we talked about it at the time, this was back in 2002, Yes. I remember the conversations we had in my office saying, I don't see how somebody who's got a nationwide database is going to tell people in California that they've been compromised and not then be obliged to let people in another 49 states have that same information. I mean, just as a practical matter, because it's going to be public and hit the press, you know, it seemed unlikely. And sure enough, what happened was that, you know, somebody who was holding your data in Arkansas had a national database that uh, comprom- that was compromised, they ended up deciding they had to tell not only Californians, but people in every one of the states. And so effectively, the California standard became a national standard. And then what happened was that, you know, another 30-plus states, I think we're up to 35 states now, who have yes. essentially passed similar legislation, some not quite so strong, but, you know, a lot of them more or less the same as California's. That means there really is a national standard in place at this point, because when the database gets compromised, people say, well, we're going to have to provide notice pursuant to the California law as well as the law in the other 34 states. That means we're going to have to let everybody know, so let's just get to it. Exactly. I mean, it, it really was not just a California law. It was a national law. And and since you and I have talked, and many times we've had attorneys on here. In fact, even Peter Swire, who was the, um, the privacy czar for Clinton administration, who does a lot of work with uh, in privacy right now with companies across the com- country, he said that bill was one of the most influential bills because he works with clients every day who want to know how can they protect themselves so they don't have to notify. Right. That, no, that's, and that's exactly right, which is, as I say, what, what we did, I think, was, um, I mean, yes, the notice is an important and essential part of the bill, but what's, what's nowhere in the bill but that is clearly the good result is that people out there are saying, all right, what do I have to do to make sure that that doesn't, and in fact, <clears throat> even before the bill took effect, I remember in early 2003, I was in Los Angeles 
talking to a group of security experts uh, at a conference organized by the U.S. Secret Service, uh, trying to explain to them what the expectations were with the bill, because they were all going to go off and work with their clients to improve security. So, I mean, and the scary part of that, Murray, is if we've heard about all the breaches we've heard about, imagine how bad it would have been if people hadn't taken the security steps they took to try and avoid those notice requirements. Well, you know, Senator Simidian, when I, I testified in Congress um, last year with Choice Point and Axiom and LexisNexis and several others about security breaches, and that's when uh, Senator Bill Nelson had introduced S-500, which was to try and deal with the issues of background checks and security breaches, etc. And one of the things that they had admitted several times was before 2003, when your bill, you know, when the law became effective in California, they had breaches of literally millions of people, and they just didn't tell them. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, we know that. Absolutely. No, people, look, if there was a breach, um, there was no obligation to report it, and that meant that people were at risk to greater or lesser degrees. And I'd be the first to admit, you know, look, sometimes... The, the risk may have been relatively modest. Uh, sometimes the risk was probably pretty obvious, uh, but in either event, no one had to tell you, and more often than not, they didn't. Exactly. And still, even now, when we hear about these major security breaches with you know, the VA or whomever, even the IRS, we, we are hearing about it when there's you know, literally thousands of people, but I hear about smaller breaches when accounting offices call me or right. a doctor's office calls right. me. These don't even get in the paper, and of course I don't want to put them in the paper, but they want to do the right thing and notify their patients or notify their yeah. clients. So no, we don't this, know how many people this is happening to. And, and you know, those, you know, those cases may involve only a relative handful of people that you're talking about. Hundreds, that you're hundreds, with. yeah. But, it, you know, that's a small consolation to anyone if it's their information that has been compromised. And so, uh, you know, a lot of business is held, excuse me, a lot of information is held by small businesses. Uh, and the fact that the law applies to them as well as to the uh, bigger forces in the industry, I think, um, you know, ultimately it's going to be tremendously important. This, you know, I, I you were kind enough, uh, you mentioned the uh, Scientific American identified me and my uh, fellow author on the bill's uh, former state senator C. Peace on these as uh, recipients of their um, Scientific American 50 Award 2003. My, you know, I'm in an office where I need help from my staff to make my email work. So they thought this was the funniest <laughs> thing they'd ever heard. But it was, I thought, an indication of just how powerful a simple idea was, which is if you lose it, you have to tell people. That's yes. really, you know, you strip away the bill, that's really what it is. You lose it, you got to tell people, and then they're in a position to make decisions about how they protect themselves. That's really all the bill ever did. Well, now we're looking at some federal legislation that may really you know, kind of water down all the work that, that you've done. What do you, have well, you I'm, been keeping I, up with that? Or? I have, and, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about the federal legislation. As you know, there have been a number of authors with a number of proposals uh, when the uh, Congress the last couple of years didn't seem to have much momentum behind this, but we've got a new Congress. Uh, and I worry that... Um, the protection that we have uh, is going to be sacrificed on the altar of federal legislation. Yes. I understand the argument that people are making, which is, well, if we have to provide a little bit less in order to get a full-fledged federal standard, then you know, to do the nationwide protection, it might be worth it. But I'm not sure those folks understand that argument really doesn't hold water when you consider that, as I mentioned earlier, we have a de facto national standard right now. Yeah, I Be- said that's exactly what I've said to everyone. I said, yeah. why don't you just adopt California's standard? Well, but even if, if something isn't broken, why why? But fix even it? if they don't adopt California's standard, we would be better off right now. I yes. Mean, what we're hearing at the federal level is, let's let people who lose your information make their own judgment about whether you're at risk. Well, that doesn't make me so- feel very comfortable. And in some cases, it's, or let's say they don't have to report if they've taken some sort of steps or have a program in place to make sure that people can't misuse the information. Well, look, you know, all that does is let the fox guard the hen house and puts people in charge of their own cleanup after they've made a mistake rather than giving them the incentive to avoid the mistake in the first place. And then, to make matters worse, the federal law that, that we keep hearing about would preempt stronger laws like California's, 
And the point I'm making is we don't even need to adopt a law at the federal level at this point if it's not as strong as California's, because California's law, as I pointed out earlier, has become the de facto standard that people have to respond to when they have a breach. If there's a breach in Arkansas and a database that contains information from 50 states, they're going to follow the California standard because they have to, and they're going to end up giving folks in the other 49 states the same information. Right, they benefit and, by it. And, and so we have a de facto national standard in place now that is California's standard, and that's certainly the case now that we've got 35 states who have adopted similar legislation. So we'd be better off. I mean, this, yes. you know, I've been, my friends have been teasing me on this one. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. <laughs> I, you know, I really do think we would be better off with no federal legislation and continue to rely on the state standards that are applied nationwide rather than have a weakened federal law with preemption for significant protections like California's law provides. Exactly. And, you know, I wanted to bring up to you when you brought up about what they're saying about let let the banks or whomever has experienced the breach decide in their wisdom whether or not there's a reasonable risk of harm. Well, let me tell you something. Of the thousands of identity theft victims who I have you know, been speaking with over the years, most of them are the ones that inform the companies that they have been victimized. The the, the companies do not inform them. They have to inform the companies that, hey, I'm a victim of identity theft. This is a fraudulent account or this is a fraudulent mortgage. So it, it just is so faulty because the the company is not in the position to know whether or not they're going to become a victim of identity theft and they're not even in a in the position to even tell them at the time that they're a victim of identity theft even though you might get the neural network from American Express calling you did you make this charge they're not going to do it if somebody else has a new card in your name right so it's crazy, and and I am worried. I mean, they, I'm I'm was looking at all of the the bills that have been out there, and even the Leahy's bill, the recent one, still has this reasonable risk of harm issue in it that I think destroys everything that you worked for to just make those companies tighten up their security. It's unfortunate. Well, we'll stay on it, and we'll hope, uh, and in fact, I should tell you, one of the things we're going to do with our Senate Select Committee this year here in California is revisit uh, the effects of AB 700, SB 1386, the security breach notification legislation, and hope to use that as a venue to discuss how well has it worked, what has it done, what has it not done, and uh, hopefully have some opportunity to comment on federal activity at the same time. That's great. And I've, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and attorneys who deal with this all the time, and I think it has made a tremendously positive impact. And even the attorneys will tell you that, that companies are taking your data, your sensitive data, and looking at it much more seriously. Before, they were always worried about their intellectual property, and now they really are worrying about data protection. In fact, you know, in a, we're having next week, we're having a data protection conference, a summit right here in Orange County and talk about why it's so important. In fact, I'm doing a program on uh, the security breaches and what have we learned. So, good, good, good. Yeah, I'll have to send you my stuff about that. I want to re- introduce you again. We are speaking with California Senator Joe Simidian, my hero. He is also chair of the new California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy and doing great work with regard to everything from security breaches, RFID, and let's talk now about your pretexting bill that passed last year. Uh, uh, you know, one of those uh, funny uh, and somewhat satisfying moments, uh, given the kind of work I do. You know, some of these privacy issues, Mari, as you know, it, you know, they unfortunately don't get the public attention we wish they would until and unless there is a, uh, a crisis or a, an international or national event. And I had introduced a, a, you know, a little bill that didn't draw much attention or interest at all uh, back in August of 2005. And then uh, end of 05, beginning of 06, uh, it got a little notice because what the bill did was very simple. It said it was against the law for someone to buy or sell your phone records without your knowledge and consent. And it's against the law to pretext, meaning to represent yourself as someone you're not, in order to get their phone records. So, you know, what I had discovered was that uh, anyone with 89.95 could go online to any one of a dozen or more scores, actually, of sites that said, 
send us a name, send us a phone number, and send us eighty nine ninety five, and we'll find out what the last hundred phone calls were that this person made. Right. Well, you know, I do that. I can find out, you know, a lot about Mari by looking at her last hundred phone calls. Right. I can find out is she seeing a therapist? Does she have a boyfriend? Is she looking for a new job? Does she have a bookie where she places bets? I mean, all of that is revealed by your phone calls. Your phone calls are really the sort of roadmap to your personal life. And people were just buying and selling this information as if, uh, you know, there were no privacy concerns. So I introduced a bill to prohibit that. Didn't draw much interest, frankly. We were working our way through the system. And then there was a bit of a flap when uh, General Wes Clark, a former presidential candidate, uh, had had his cell phone records purchased online for less than $100, and people sort of started to get a little bit more interested in the bill. But, you know, that sort of came and went. Right. And then I finally got the bill all the way through the, our legislative system and had it sitting on the governor's desk and, you know, had to be signed or vetoed in 30 days. And then, of course, there was a major uh, event uh, with allegations of pretexting uh, and phone record acquisition at Hewlett-Packard. And that's really when the public sort of finally stood up and took notice of the fact that, um, wait a minute, you mean people are out there buying and selling my phone records uh, <laughs> and that they can do that? And the answer was, yeah, they can and they do. I mean, it's been a thriving online business for years. Uh, we, you know, we hope that we finally put that out of, uh, out of business. The governor signed the bill, and uh, as of January 1st this year, it is against the law for someone to buy or sell your phone records and it's against the law for someone to acquire them by pretexting, meaning to pretend to be Mari when it's not really Mari who's making the call. Right. And, you know, pretext calling is used for a variety of oh, reasons. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we find this all the time. I had a guy who was in Detroit, a, a little old gentleman who called me and said that he got a call about 11 o'clock at night that woke him up. He was about 75 years old, and he said that um, the person at the other end said, hey, you haven't served jury duty, and I'm calling you because you are in trouble because you haven't done that. Now, give me your social security number and give me your birth date and all these things. And he did that. You know, he believed that it was definitely, you know, somebody calling from his county. And, and of course, people are taken in by that kind of stuff. Well, and it's a shame that it takes a high-profile incident. I mean, the two incidents that got, got attention on a national level, one involved business and one involved politics. But, you know, the real abuse was on a day-to-day basis that people were acquiring this information you know, for personal issues. I mean, imagine, you know, that uh, we've got a husband and wife who are estranged and the husband can access the phone records for his estranged wife and find out, you know, where she's spending time now. And I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an invasion of privacy, but it's also something that can put people at risk physically as well. Yeah, I mean, stalking you, finding yeah. out where you are, calling, and then somebody can find, can do a reverse um, on the internet. They can reverse the phone number and find out what the address is. And then go and bother somebody else if, if your boyfriend thinks that you're having, uh, you know, some kind of relationship no, I, with someone else. I, you know, I, you've, uh, you've mentioned before that I obviously love my job, and I do. And part of the reason is I, it just it's a wonderful opportunity to go off and not only explore these areas, but hopefully to come up with solutions. So, you know, just in the last few years to be able to work on the security breach notification issue to try and give consumers protection if their information has been compromised, the pretexting bill, which is now law, which uh, hopefully means that people won't have their telephone records and their personal lives bought and sold like, you know, uh, so many baseball cards, uh, and now the RFID issue and trying to get ahead of the curve on an emerging privacy problem. Uh, it's all, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and it has real-world implications for the people I represent on a daily basis. So, Senator, we don't have a lot of time left, but what are your plans for this new Senate Select Committee on Privacy? It sounds very exciting to me. Well, I, I want to take a look uh, at a range of issues. Uh, I want to use it as a vehicle to take a look at this RFID issue that we've talked about, to look at the security breach law and see how that's working. Are there is there room for improvement? Should we be doing more? Are there amendments that would make the bill uh, even more effective? Uh, but there are, you know, a whole host of other issues out there. I don't think we've really come to grips with uh, the question of cameras in public places and public spaces. You know, to what extent are we comfortable uh, with cameras up on street corners that are there in most instances to, most instances to try and provide uh, an additional increment of safety, keep neighborhoods safe? I think that's a legitimate concern. On the other hand, I think it's a conversation we ought to have. Uh, to what extent are we feeling okay about having our 
either law enforcement or National Guard, reviewing the conduct and behavior, essentially spying on legitimate citizens groups, student groups who may have a political point of view that they want to share. That's a conversation that we had 20 or 30 years ago, but never brought to any final resolution. Probably time to have that conversation again, given some of the things that are going on. Uh, and, you know, what about what are the privacy implications of uh, many of these social sites like Facebook and MySpace? You know, they're incredibly popular, but I'm not sure that the young people who participate are given an awful lot of thought to the kind of risks they're creating for themselves uh, when they aren't mindful of privacy and security concerns. How about, are you doing anything about access to background checks? Um, You know, the whole issue of these information brokers having some kind of regulation over these information brokers that sell our stuff and it's not even accurate. It's, you know, it's it's an issue that we have not talked about in depth, but it's certainly one that comes up from time to time. And, you know, really the first, our first, uh, first job, as you've, uh, sort of uh, highlighted here with your question will be to sit down and say, what are the areas we want to take a look at? What should be at the top of the list? And what are we going to have to wait a bit before we get to? Right. Well, I'll tell you something that I'm excited about this committee of yours. Will you, will you really be looking at public policy here for the yeah, state? The, our, you know, this is a process that's not widely uh, understood. Uh, it's a little obscure here in state government. But when we create a Senate select committee, we don't look at individual bills. We look at, rather at topics of concern. They're really study committees that give us an opportunity. You know, it's, it's hard, frankly, when you have thousands of bills that are moving through. It sort of becomes almost a, an assembly line if you're not careful. And it's a little hard sometimes to step back and say, you know, rather than be driven by the agenda every day, you know, when do we stop and ask ourselves what ought to be on the agenda of government? And that's really what these select committees are designed to do. We're going to get, you know, probably six or seven of my colleagues uh, sit down at the table and say, let's talk about what the emerging privacy challenges are here in the state of California and see if that uh, turns into a uh, set of recommendations for legislation that might be introduced farther down the line. So are you going to be looking toward privacy people to assist you and, and industry people to assist to give you some ideas? Because I sure ab- could give you some ab- ideas. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I had, This is really a reconstitution of a committee that I chaired when I was in the state assembly. I chaired the uh, Assembly Select Committee on Privacy, which no longer exists, and it was by that very process that the proposal for the security breach notification legislation came up. Um, you know, I went out and met with folks. We held hearings. We heard from folks in the industry. We heard from folks in the privacy community. Uh, heard from folks in law enforcement. And that was, you know, the education uh, of uh, the members, if you will, that then led to introduction of specific bills trying to solve specific problems. Yeah, because I, I think there are some real big issues with DNA use and health care privacy. I mean, there's just so much yeah. going on. It's it's almost too much, but I'm going to be sending you emails of some things that I'd like you to consider well, at thank least. You. And you've been terrific. We, uh, we really hope that your RFID legislation passes. We want everyone who's listening to know that they can go to your website. Will you give your website? Sure. The website address is uh, senatorsimidian.com, www.senatorsimidian.com. And what what can we do if people who are listening to this, they're driving by, they want to go to your website, what can they do to help and be supportive or find out more? I know you well, have great shoot, stuff on there. Shoot me, shoot me an email, and our website's in a period of transition. We intend within the next month to have a new... Uh, more 21st century site up, so I'll ask your listeners to be patient with us if uh, it's not all that it might be at this point. But, you know, send an email uh, to, uh, you know, uh, senator.submidian at sen.ca.gov, senator.submidian, S-I-M-I-T-I-A-N, at sen, short for Senate, dot C-A, short for California, dot gov, short for government, and let us know what you think. Uh, We... You know, we try very hard to hear from uh, a wide segment of the community as I put my bill package together for every year. We've just finished that process uh, in terms of a a list of bills for this year, meaning 2007. Uh, But, uh, you know, as soon as we get to the point where we've introduced bills for this year, it's time to start thinking about what are we going to do next year already. So um, now is the time, and we're always happy to hear from people 
Um, you know, I, I have a wonderful district with 900,000 smart, well-educated, and engaged folks in it, but the knowledge of the world doesn't reside with any one of us or even within any 900,000 of us. So uh, I get good ideas from around the state and around the nation and around the world, and um, I'm always happy to hear from people. And Well, uh, we appreciate it. We're gonna, Lloyd is giving me the sign that we got to right. go, but you have been absolutely wonderful. We're going to catch up with you, and we're going to be supporting you, and all we right. will have to have you on again next year to enlighten us more about what you're doing. Thank Thanks. you, Senator. Thanks so much, Mari. Stay in touch. Okay. You've been listening to Senator Joe Simidian, who is a California senator and chair of the California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Please visit our website to see our previous guests, listen to their interviews, download our podcasts, see our upcoming guests at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you, Engineer Lloyd, and we'll see you next week at 5 p.m. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 